This is the Hidden Wire podcast, episode 882. This is my interview with Greg Sadler. We're talking about how to put philosophy into practice. Great conversation, guys. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode here at the Hidden Wire. I hope you're fantastic, guys. I hope you're having a great day. It's a beautiful, wet day here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Not sure how it is where you are, but I hope you're in a good spot to chill out and listen to this episode. If you like philosophy, I think you're going to really enjoy my conversation with Greg Sadler. So Greg is a um, professor, I suppose. He's he's studied um, philosophy for much of his life, and he's really helped, you know, use philosophy to put in practice in his own life to help with certain things. Anger being one of them. He says he's had uh, issues with anger throughout his life, and philosophy has helped that. So putting the philosophy into practice—that's what he's all about, and that's what his website, uh, Reason.io, he's the president of the company is all about too, providing really useful resources, coaching, tutoring, counselling services to help people in their life because what philosophy can really help us with is all aspects of our life. Whether you're having problems in your relationship or you've got anger issues, whatever it might be, the philosophical practices that um, are across the board, whether it be stoicism or one of the other forms of philosophy, can be applied to our lives to help improve our overall life so that's what it's all about and that's where we start the conversation with and we veer off here and there in tangents but um, at the end of it I think we just had a really cool philosophical conversation so that's what it's all about today philosophy I hope you guys enjoy please check out all the links uh, Greg's got a really cool YouTube channel so I'll stick the links in the show notes for this episode episode 892 cheers guys enjoy g'day Greg and welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast how are you I'm good how are you I'm fantastic, mate. Thanks for uh, joining us here on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. Whereabouts are you in the world, Greg? So in in the United States, in the Midwest, and in the city of Milwaukee that I think most people know for happy days. Milwaukee. Yeah, okay. Excellent. It, um... <laughs> we, ha- we actually have a statue of uh, the bronze fawns in the downtown that tourists come by and take pictures with. The bronze fawns. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I'd love to get over there one day. The, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, it's actually a great city. It's uh, very different than than what people think about it. It's just much like many cities around the world. Yeah, it's good to just explore. I love exploring cities and for their different cultures and facets and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, are you much of a traveler? Um, I, I used to be back when I was younger, but now because I take on too many projects... I think really the only travel I end up doing is for, for work, and that's uh, mostly just give talks or things like that, do some consulting things. Okay. So I, I was talking with my wife the other day, and we were trying to think about the last time we actually went somewhere just for fun, and it's been about close to 10 years. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It gets like that in life, doesn't it? It gets busy, and you're focusing on other priorities, I suppose. Yeah, it seems like it never gets uh, slower or simpler. Even if you start applying, you know, techniques to try to do time management and simplify your life, um, it, it never quite works out that way. If you no. if you have a lot of obligations, no, it's it's minimalist sort of lifestyle is is hard to create, but it's certainly achievable. But um, I think you know a lot of some people don't have the desire to travel as much as others. I suppose so. That's certainly an impact and. You know, if you're passionate about your work and really involved in that sense, then hey, that's fine too. But um, yeah, for me, I, I would I would do anything right now to to travel more. 
and do it more regularly. But I've got two young kids in the career and all that sort of thing. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, kids really put a crimp on that. That sort of um, makes it a bit more challenging. But it is nice to explore these these areas. And I, I haven't been to the States yet, so one day we'll get there. Oh, it's yeah, there's a, so much to see over, over here. It's on the list, yeah. Uh, and look, mate, I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation today discussing philosophy. Um, and I think the, the term that you guys use in your work is putting philosophy into practice and taking, right, yeah. taking the complicated, I guess, scary or academic sort of theory behind philosophy and putting it into maybe layman's terms for people like myself that aren't philosophers that can then use this and use the practices of philosophy to help improve our overall lifestyle. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that would be the conversation that I'd like to have today, and I think that's sort of what's driven behind your work as well. Yeah, that sounds good, and and that's dead on as far as like describing what it is that that I do. Um, the reason I was is basically just me. I you know I created a business so I could use it for tax purposes, and then mm. it kind of took off. Um, but yeah, that's that's exactly what I what I try to do, and I, I sort of stumbled into it. Um, most of my academic colleagues either don't want to do that sort of work of, of making philosophy approachable. They, they look down on that or they, they just don't have any, any talent at it. Some of the people who are trying to do it get out there and they, they flounder around. There's sort of like that. Have you seen that meme with, uh, Steve Bashimi? I, I don't know what show it's from, but he shows up and he's got a skateboard and, and a hat and, and he's, he's saying, you know, how to do you kids, you know, and, and everyone's looking at him like he's like he's a nut. That's what unfortunately happens with most academic philosophers when they start trying to talk to ordinary gotcha. people. Gotcha. All right. Yes, that makes sense, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a way to communicate things like that. And I guess that's, you know, for, for an educator, um, that's that's what's required. You have to have that that sort of skill level and it looks like you do you've got a very popular youtube channel um which is i think you said over fifty thousand subscribers but it looks like there's more like sixty five thousand, as as far as i can tell um it's a very popular channel there and obviously you're you're giving out that information and, and making it easy for people to access and understand yeah and a lot of people use it in their you know professors use it in their own courses right. and then a lot of students use my my videos and there's a lot of people too you know one of the cool things about youtube is it makes things accessible to people who can't go to college yes so i get a lot of comments with people saying oh you know i, I had to drop out of college i can't afford it this is really nice because it feels like i'm back in a classroom again or you know i, I wanted to study this text and i was a little bit intimidated by it but the videos helped me get get through it so that's that's very gratifying and yeah the, the video channel I never meant to get into that. I, I, I've told this story in a number of different uh, places, but it's it's always worth telling again. My wife, who at that time was just, she was my fiance, um, she talked me into actually recording lectures and putting them on YouTube because I, I'm sort of, a, I'm not a political conservative, but when it comes to technology, I'm rather conservative and almost curmudgeonly, you know, Somebody comes out with a new platform and I'll be, oh, that's not going to work. You know, forget that. And and so she, you know, she uh, stuck with it. And she said, no, no, you should give it a try. Um, and so I, I did. I put the the videos of me just teaching in class. I'd, I'd plunk down a, a flip cam back when flip was still a company before they went bankrupt. And, uh, you know, I, I would just record straight footage. No mic, nothing. Raw, and unedited people, stuff. Yep. 
Yeah, and people and the, the lighting was terrible. <laughs> I love that. I think it's some of the best. It's very yeah, authentic, pe- isn't it? And, well, that's that's part of it. I think people thought it's like being in an actual classroom environment. But then, mm. you know, if, if you've got good content, people will gravitate towards it. And I, I really liked YouTube early on because it had this equalizing effect. Um, I mean, it's not just in America, all, all over the world, there's kind of a tier system to universities, and it's very class conscious, even though they, they'd like to pretend that they're, they're not. And so if you're not teaching at a top notch university, you're kind of a nobody. Um, from the perspective of, of academics. So YouTube, you know, at, at least at the beginning of it, it, it uh, leveled that playing field. So if you could talk competently about Aristotle or critical thinking or some problem in ethics, people would watch it. And uh, it, was, it was, you know, it was quite interesting to see how things developed. Now, you know, it's a whole different kind of environment. There's there's uh, changes in how how videos get suggested, and YouTube has its secret algorithms, and they seem to be much more interested in in certain kinds of videos than mm. others. But it, it's still a workable um, platform for for doing academic work that translates into a larger audience. Yeah, and do you still do? Um, are you still a professor at a university or college? Well, um, I haven't been a tenure-track professor since 2011. Okay. I, I left, well, and again, this is a story that has to do with my wife. She was living in, in New York working at the Culinary Institute of America where she was first a, uh, uh, an assistant dean, and then she was the uh, director of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. Mm-hmm. So she would work with chefs and teach them how to be good instructors and do all sorts of, and she, she wound up being drawn into all sorts of other things. So she wasn't going anywhere. And I was, I was living down in North Carolina and, and teaching at Fayetteville state university. And I wasn't particularly, you know, keen on staying there because, um, it was a very dysfunctional place. I, I had a lot of opportunities for me. I, I was going up for early tenure and promotion and I'd, I'd moved into administration a bit and run university wide assessment. But we were doing this long distance commuter thing. I, have you ever done that where you're like in, in separate places? No, not really. No, that's terrible. That's a, yeah, it would be. <laughs> unless you unless you really like spending time away from your your spouse or, you know, significant other. Um, I suppose it could be good for some people, but it, it was such a drag, you know. Yeah. So so we said, uh, yeah, so we said, let, let's let's live in the same place. And, you know, I moved up to New York and left the. The job behind, and then I, I just taught as an adjunct for Marist College, and and started you know doing other things on on the side, and then when we moved back here to Milwaukee, which is where both of us are from, um, I've been teaching for uh, about four different places here in the area, and one of them I do have the title of uh, adjunct professor, but yeah. Yeah. you know that's not the same thing as being a professor. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people people sometimes call me professor. I don't correct them anymore because it's just too tiresome and kind of pedantic to do it. But technically speaking, I don't have any professorial ca- capacities or, or that sort of thing. But I, but I teach. But you're you know, still doing for, the teaching side of things anyway. Yeah. Obviously and, and with your I, own work. And I, hmm. Yeah, and I enjoy it quite a bit. It's, it's nice being in the classroom and sort of you know, getting to interact with the new generation of, of students who now I'm, I'm two generations removed from because I'm generation X and we're done with the millennials. They've, they've all since graduated and now it's all this Gen Y hmm. uh, crowd. 
and you know it's it's interesting to get into these these uh, conversations with them and find out what they what they think matters and what they don't think matters uh, it helps me to revise my curriculum yep because you know what are some of the so, key differences there that you know like with with the younger generations now coming through well there's a compared to the millennials there's an even deeper sense of disconnect and alienation from the larger society because they know they're screwed you know with 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 my generation generation way? x oh all uh, all sorts of ways economically in terms of being able to find work uh the amount of of work that goes into just applying for jobs um here in the United States, our educational system, which isn't really a system, but just a sort of hodgepodge of all sorts of other systems, is quite expensive, and there's no guarantee that they'll find jobs within their areas after they, they graduate, even if they stick to, you know, safe degrees. Uh, that, that often doesn't happen unless they've, you know, got good contacts mm. or something like that. So there, there's this sense of... of um, a lot of uncertainty not, there, then. Yeah, not quite despair, um, because if they did despair, they would just leave altogether. They would they would disconnect as as some people do. But they they know that there's this sense that the odds are against them, That's and yeah, and and that the the other you know sometimes they'll call us boomers by mistake. But there's there's people in in my generation who are very dismissive of the difficulties that that the younger people do perceive we're talking what around the 20s early 20s yeah at teens and 20s yeah um and and interesting that they know know, that i thought they were i I sort of get this perception or feeling that they're maybe they're knowing but i don't really think that they're knowing i I just feel like they seem to be just relaxed and on cruise pilot sort of thing but that's maybe a very arrogant perception well it may it may be different from place to place too Mm. you know I couldn't imagine being um, too different. Like I think from where you are to here, I would feel that there's similar levels of uncertainty and stress on young people. I think in terms of economic matters, yes, but but in terms of the educational system, it's probably a bit different. A bit different, yeah. Because we, you know, we have this. I mean, we have this massive student loan crisis where, um, over the last twenty years or so. Both of our political parties, the Republicans a bit more than the Democrats, but they, both of them have played a major role in making it more and more difficult for um, student, uh, what's the opposite of a, a lender, a lendee, I suppose. They've made it more and more difficult for the, the people that are being lent to, and they've made it much easier for lenders to impose these exorbitant yeah. terms. You know? And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's really quite unfair. What? Um, how do they like? How do they? How are they dealing with this? I suppose if they're knowing that they're screwed. For me, it would sound like they're they're probably not dealing with it well. But I mean, are they dealing with it? And what are they doing? They're certainly dealing with it better than than my generation did. Um, less of them seem to be uh, having a you know a sort of just hedonistic lifestyle <laughs> to retreat into. I suppose you know there's other ways of doing that if you if, if you you know. Many of them have minimal, minimalism essentially forced upon them, and and so they could embrace that that sort of thing before they get themselves hooked up with uh, a spouse and family and regular job or things like that. Um, I, I I don't know. It's it's um it's sort of an open question as, as we're adapting seeing it. Well, adapting to the the challenges. Yeah, and, and 
and and they're you know they're that generation the 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 vanguard of it is in college right now so a lot of this is being figured out as we're going through it and mm. you know we have some very interesting conversations in our, our classes about it whereas previous generations um would you know the idea of like there being a social contract that we could all buy into and contribute to that's completely gone they yeah. they feel like the the uh, society and the previous generations have thoroughly screwed things up and have thrust these things in their lap and they're kind of waiting for um, us older people to get the hell out of their way so they can they can fix things if they can be fixed mm. I mean the environment is another great example too um, we knew that there was there were a lot of environmental problems when I was in college but we didn't have this looming threat of, you know, rising sea levels and uh, other other quite significant problems. Mm. But, you know, you, you, I mean, you can tell existentially just living here in Wisconsin. Around this time in February, we would have snow piled up quite high uh, everywhere around in, in this city when I was a kid. And now there's nothing. It snowed a few times. There's been some, you know, pile up and then it melts. And you can tell that that the at least this part of the world is getting hotter, and we have species invading, you know, from the south that that weren't able to make make it through the winters here that that we see. So you know, these students they see this sort of thing, mm. and and you know, they're they're many of them are quite well. They don't understand how to use uh, new media particularly well, but they're usually tapped into it, so they're they're getting some information at least. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting to so, see how it's going to evolve and change things going forward too. Yeah, so, it all has so, a flow-on effect, doesn't it? Yeah, so going back to it, it's kind of fun to teach them. Mm. You know, it, it keeps my mind fresher than it would be if I was in in other other fields, perhaps. Well, let's talk about philosophy for a little bit, sure, because um, I think there's probably lots we could talk about, um, and I guess that's that's something about philosophy that is timeless. It can be taken through many generations i mean it's been going for a thousand a couple of thousand years i suppose um a lot of the yeah. practices so i guess that can be taken from um what you know and teaching it to these you know younger people so they can use these practices and hopefully create a, a better quality of life despite the uncertainties difficulties challenges that they face yeah that's that that's a good way to put it um i would add to that that one of the there's there's probably two other key things to to having a philosophy put in front of them. Which, by the way, here in America, co- college students usually don't have any background in that whatsoever, as opposed to a lot of the other first world countries where it's part of the curriculum, you know, mm. in the academies or lycées or things like that. <clears throat> and so one of the things that practices are very important, and then um, key ideas. You know that they can sink their teeth into and use to make sense out of things it's sort of like being given a, a code so you know when you go through say plato's allegory of the cave um probably nobody's really going to buy into the platonic theory of forms but they they will use it to reflect on what they're being told and what they're not being told and uh, different media that they're they're using to get their information so there's there's you know the concepts there and then i think one of the one of the most important skills that people learn by studying philosophy if if it's done well is making distinctions 
And this is something that I do a lot in my, my private practice because I do executive coaching and mm. ethics consulting and things like that. And, mm. and you come in and people have gotten themselves into a terrible argument with each other and there's conflict. And then you, you can say, well, part of the reason why you know, you've got your personality problems over here that you don't like each other. But a lot of what's going on here is this term that you're using. You're using it to mean X and you're using it to mean Y and you keep talking past each other. And then they look at you as if you're a sort of magician, you know, when all you're really doing is clarifying something for them. And, and the reason mm -hmm. why philosophers can, can do that perhaps better than other fields is because that's what a lot of the literature consists in. So we get, we get some practice in it and we're not, you know, a hundred percent, but, but, you know, it's sort of like putting a, um, you know, star athlete, somebody who's been training their entire life and has had to go up against other people against uh, an amateur one. Um, it may be that the amateur will win some of the time, but usually the, the professional one is going to, to do better. So yeah, yeah. students practicing that is, is really quite important. And, you know, there's other, there's other things to, to it as well that, that help to conduce to improving their life. I mean, sometimes you could say, well, you should study Plato for the sake of studying Plato because it is great literature. And every time that you go to the texts, what, what makes a text a classic text is, is not just that people keep publishing it, but that people keep reading it and teaching it because there's so many things there that you, you can never get it on a first or second or even, you know, 20th read. Right. You, you keep finding new, new things. And so that's, that's another cool thing too about, frankly, about the field. I never get bored. As it seems to like that because, I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a very surface level um, philosopher, I suppose, or, or a person that has read philosophy. And yeah. I can see that the practices, you know, I can see them repeated, 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 repeated. Um, but it seems like the people that I'm listening to or, or observing, um, there's never ending um, source of content for them to go out there and teach um, from the what seems to be very similar practices. Yeah, that and sense. that could yeah. actually lead to a, a kind of negative reaction, which which is very very common actually for people studying philosophy. They'll that say. Oh, I'll never get to the bottom of all of this. You know, look at all these okay. books. I, you know, and 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 so it can lead to a kind of um, existential crisis, a despair that happens oftentimes in graduate school, <laughs> but for some of the brighter ones in undergraduate as well. Hmm. And you know, I, I often get questions with people saying, "Well, who do I have to read?" And I'll say, "Well, you know, you read who you who you want to, who you find productive." And they'll say, "Well, what if I'm supposed to read Aristotle and I'm not getting anything out of it?" And I'll, I'll tell them. I found Aristotle incredibly boring until I was in graduate school. And then something clicked. For me, it was largely being able to read it in Greek and seeing these interconnections between uh, okay. terms that have been kind of concealed by the translations. But it could be other things for other people. And I, I think a lot of people, when they approach philosophy, they they place these um, these these unnecessary burdens upon themselves that make them make them feel bad and mm. then of course it, it kind of sucks for them and they don't want to do it so any philosophical text as a matter of fact i just i, I went through this with some of my prison students just uh earlier this week uh in in our office hours um, we have this online class for <clears throat> for inmates here in wisconsin um 
called the it's called the Second Chance Pell program, and so I'm doing you know ethics with them, and they were they were kind of dismayed by the fact that they were not understanding everything in in the text that I designed, and I was like, well, you're not going to understand everything. That that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just that there's a, a, an awful lot here. You know, it's sort of like expecting to listen to a symphony and understand every single thing that's going on in that. No, you've got to give it a number of listens. And, and even then, you know, it's going to be helpful to have somebody guide you through it. And I mean, I, and, that's like most things in life, isn't it, really? I mean, if we, we exactly, put these ex- yeah. unrealistic expectations on ourselves to... And I think maybe it's more common these days as well than it has been in the past. There must be a higher level of expectation on people. Uh, yeah, you know, not. something I've I've noticed too is there's a kind of competitiveness in online communities about it's almost like self-credentialing people will say oh i've i've you know read everything that plato wrote which usually is bs anyway because almost nobody's read everything that the guy wrote you know (laughs) but but they'll say things like that and they're doing it essentially to compete for position or prestige with within a community and, it, and it's it's very bad for them hmm. and it also sets a bad example for others because it gives them the impression that if you if you've you know you've managed to read your way through a corpus of text that now somehow you've you've mastered it as if uh it's just you know well like i said it's kind of a self-credentialing thing you you get you get the well, that yeah. has a flow-on effect to then everyone else that sees that post and then suddenly places this expectation on themselves to, oh, well, why why aren't I that good? Why haven't I read exactly. everything? Exactly, yeah, photos? yeah. And then, you know, and then it makes people feel bad and then they don't want to, you know, they it's may study the stuff, it? but it becomes a chore. Than, well, I think definitely, definitely if you have this expectation on yourself that you should be at point X and you feel that you're only at point Y, um, in this day and age, we certainly will give up sooner because we you know we want that instant sort of uh satisfaction in whatever we do yeah as well that's that's quite true and there's so many other things you could be doing you could be spending your time instead at the gym or um i don't know studying history although history man you want to talk about something that's difficult to master right yeah look i think each to their own you know yeah you've obviously dedicated a large chunk of your life to studying philosophy and that's that's cool um but it doesn't mean then a person that's interested in philosophy needs to be at the level you are, you know? Um, no, as, and, and actually, um, even even the stuff that I know, so th- this is kind of interesting. You, you, you think about like a spectrum uh, when, you, when you do like those uh, analyses of, of elements, <clears throat> you know, with uh, you find a rock and you can do a spectral analysis of, of it. Yeah. And there's all these little lines and then most of it is actually like black space in between there. Hmm. And if you if you compress those lines close together, it looks like oh everything is filled in. But even somebody like me, I've I've read many fewer texts and thinkers than I've not read, and it's that's just the way it has to be because there's so much stuff being published all the time. And even with like if I, I said well forget about everything published from 1900 on, I I still couldn't spend my entire life reading all of the the stuff that's been published, let alone understanding a good portion of it. So, you know, some people see that and they're like, oh, this is this, I'm never going to uh, get it, get it, get my mind around anything. So we think about what's, what's really essential. And, you know, we can kind of go by the testimony of other people. You probably should read Plato, you know, even if you don't particularly enjoy it the first time around, there's, there's probably something there because people have been recommending him for, you know, 2000 years. Hmm. 
Um, so that 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 probably should occupy a space. You don't have to read everything the guy wrote, and you know there there's some dialogues that are actually quite boring that I wouldn't recommend reading. You know? Yeah. Um, and but you know when it comes to others, if you haven't read Ortega y Gasset, okay, you're missing out on something, but it's not it's not terrible. And um, you know, you also apply a sort of pragmatic criterion. Is this actually making my life better in any way hmm. by, by having things that I can apply or helping me see the world differently or help, helping me understand my relationships or move towards being a, what I conceive to be a better person? Um, if not, maybe you didn't need to read that text. I, I think a lot of my colleagues would probably get angry at me for saying that. but Yeah. <laughs> what um, This is interesting, like... With that that level of expectation, we can put on it. And I've, read, I've listened to someone talk about this just recently, actually, and they're talking about, you know, the great age of hacks. We're all obsessed with how we can oh, hack our yeah. lives. And um, I don't know where it came across it. Anyway, I heard it, and I thought, you know, that's really fascinating because I've been drawn into that world of hacks and, um, you know, like learning five different languages in a, in a very rapid manner. Um, yeah. But they explain it in a way that says, you know, that's fine, but what is it all for? What is it all about? And that made me start thinking about, yeah, like we, we, I try and push myself towards certain things. But then if I look at it and really think about it, what is the reason behind me doing that? And there is no reason. I'm just adding this incredible level of pressure and stress on my life that's really unnecessary. And at the end of all of my life, it's probably very irrelevant too. Yeah. I'll say just a couple things about the the hack thing. So I, I saw yes. something really funny on Twitter earlier today. It was a guy who was being facetious that he said, you know, here's a here's a, a brain hack for you. I only think one out of three of my thoughts. You know? <laughs> and, and you know, it's such a. I mean, there's a lot you could unpack there, but it's a great it's a great joke. But you know, I think about um, some of the things that I've done in my life where I, I really put a lot of time and effort into it and I, I didn't do any of the, there, there weren't, they weren't called hacks back then, but the idea was that there were things that you could do that would you know, move you to the next level very quickly. And one of them was, was physical and one of them was linguistic. When I was, when I was in my teens, I started doing what at that time was called endurance lifting. And so you'd go into the weight room and you would spend about, two to four hours there for each session. And instead of doing like massive amount of weight, you would do a medium amount of weight, but you would do a lot of repetitions and a lot of sets. So, you know, my, my bench for, you know, when I was doing that was about 13 sets and it was a pyramid. And the most I would, I would actually bench was 175. Um, but you know, that was at the, the pinnacle of that, that set. And it, it produced, at least for my body, it produced a sort of lasting um, musculature that then when I went in the army and I, I went into other places, and even after I stopped exercising regularly, um, I retained something of that. Yeah. And it, so it was really good for me to do, but there's mm. no shortcut to that. Mm. You know, there's no like, oh, well, if you eat, you know, two dozen eggs in the morning and bench, you know, this and, and squat that, you're going to be really ripped. Well, that's 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 fine if that's your goal, but if your goal is to have something that you, you're going to carry with you into your 50s, you know, maybe mm. you want to do something differently. And it was the same thing with languages. I yeah. I work with 
so of course, you know, I'm a native English speaker and I'm kind of a half French native speaker because my, my mother's family is French Canadian. Um, and so I, I was able to learn French properly a little bit easier, I think, than others. And I also read German and can kind of speak it, you know, if I, if I have to. And then I read um, ancient Greek and ancient uh, and, and Latin. And I can kind of puzzle out like academic Italian and, and Portuguese and Spanish, but I, I wouldn't say I actually know them. And e each time that I learned a language, I went at it and I, I resisted the let's do it quickly, you know, sort of methods. I would get myself a grammar and just work through the entire grammar and look at all the examples and, you know, um, try to learn the structure of the, the language and didn't take any shortcuts. And now I, I just, you know, I don't actually spend a lot of time like continually learning. I, I polish it up every once in a while. Mm. But I've got these, I've got these uh, capacities. You know, when I read Descartes, I can read him in French or read him in his original Latin if I want to. And, and every once in a while, I have to pick up the, the dictionary and, you know, check out a word or something or the grammar. But it stuck with me. Whereas I think a lot of these, I'm going to learn, you know, Sanskrit quickly. I don't know that that stuff sticks with us. Mm. So it, it winds up a lot, a lot of those hacks wind up being, again, the self-credentialing thing where there's an immediate um, short-term gain and it's, it's not something that is, it, it's not something that becomes the fabric of your mind. It's like it's why dieting like, doesn't work. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, dieting works for most people at the start, right? No matter what well, diet it's, it's you short -term, take, it's Yeah. Yeah, you're going to lose some weight because you're actually going to pay some attention to what you're you're putting in your mouth and, and you know and chewing up. But yeah, most most dieting is terrible for people. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's interesting too because because I get I get r routinely uh, mostly on the YouTube channel I get yeah. advice from from people who want to tell me what exercises I ought to be doing and what diet I ought to be on. None of these people know me from Adam. You know, mm. they've only seen my videos, and yet they, they feel like they should give me advice about what I ought to be doing because it maybe it worked for them or, you know, yeah. uh, somebody who they know. <laughs> People are going to do that. And I think this whole short-terminism that we have in life at the moment, um, you'll get those people to go out there and something's worked very well from them in a short-term period, and they will, they will everyone usually goes out there and then starts to be very proud, I suppose, of, of what they've yeah. achieved or what they know or what they're doing and then they want to push that onto other people but you also see those same people in a couple of years or whatever it might be is they're less <laughs> less into it and less pushing yeah, it. And, you know i've yeah, experienced you myself say, how, how, how's, how's this going right and then they're like oh i'm not into that anymore it's all like, oh that's it's too bad yeah. yeah this um i mean this this i guess it's a bit of a dilemma really um, this idea of hacking lives and, and short-term focus and stuff like that. I mean, a, a point there that I sort of got from just your your conversation then was, you know, it's about the longer term. It's not necessarily about a short-term vision like you working out, you know. It was more about the longer-term game than the shorter-term game. And the other thing yeah. that you said there is about understanding what's necessary and what's not. Now, I don't know if these are philosophical practices as such, but I'm assuming there's some level of, of practice here that you could bring in to help us yeah i mean i would say they're they're not unique to philosophy um other ways of intentional living that we you know sometimes call wisdom traditions or you know and there's also contributions that can be made to some degree by psychology or the social sciences that that study human beings um so philosophy isn't the only locus for this but but 
at least a certain kind of philosophy, a certain way of doing philosophy that we often call philosophy as a way of life, really places the, the focus on, on that. Distinguishing, like you said, between what's necessary and what's not necessary, you know, setting priorities, and attending to things that are going to be more long-term. I want to come back, though, to the, the notion of, of hacking, because it's not, I, I don't think it's totally bad. No. Um, the idea that we can take who we are and look at, you know, the way we typically behave and, and the thought processes that lead to that and why we feel certain emotions and the habits that we develop, that we can, we can attain a sort of um, reflective, you know, position on that and then decide, mm-hmm. oh, I, I want to fix this part over here and tweak this over here and this part needs to go. And, and all of that, you could, you could think of that as sort of a, if we want to use this metaphor, we're sort of like computers that can hack themselves. Uh, we can never change all of our programming at once. And unfortunately our, our, you know, hardware is usually in the process of slowly decaying. <laughs> The way I suppose most computers are, but we we um, you know we have the capacity to go in there and tinker around with it and change who we are slowly over time by the hacks that we make. And and the, so the mm. problem with life, life hacks is is not that they're hacks. The problem is that they're long term ineffective and often counterproductive rather than being what, um, like Michel Foucault has this great phrase, and you don't have to be a Foucaultian to, to buy into it because there's a lot of other commitments that he makes, but he had this phrase of technologies of the self. And he, he saw that what was going on in ancient philosophy of you know the Platonists and Aristotelians and Stoics and Epicureans, they were doing precisely that. They were looking at the human being as uh, a kind of thing that can, can work upon itself and apply practices, practices are technologies, um, to make them make themselves better, to produce more freedom or agency, to um, not have to be losing their temper all the time at stupid things, you know, th- things along those lines. Hmm. How do we um, start to incorporate some of this? In, I mean, finding oh. out what's important and what's not, I think, is probably a key to beginning then, but... Um, yeah. Where do we start with philosophy and and, and using philosophy to uh, benefit our lifestyle? Well, I think that at this point in time, given the resources that we we have available, because we we all have access to the internet, yeah. maybe um, ancient philosophies are really good good place to go. And so yeah. you know there are, there are these schools, you know, <clears throat> the. Not not just Plato, but the later Platonists, like like uh, Plutarch, actually gives you a lot more ideas and techniques about how to do things than say Plato himself does. So there's the you know the the Platonists, there's the Aristotelians. Aristotle has a lot of really great practical stuff in his works, and then there were commentators, and then there was the Stoic tradition um, and the Epicurean tradition. So you got these sort of big do they four. do they vary greatly uh, on some things? Yeah, so. One example would be the nature of pleasure. Is is pleasure a good and pain a bad? Or is it something, as the Stoics would say, just indifferent, uh, the, the real good lying somewhere else? And so the Epicureans, they said everything is about pleasure and pain. So that's very different than yes, the Stoics. Right. 
And then the Aristotelians and the Platonists would be kind of in the middle. They said, well, pleasure is a good. It's just not the good. There's better stuff than it's. But, you know, all things being equal, take the pleasure, you know, if you can if you can have it without, you know, destroying your character or, or things along those lines. And so there'll be, yeah, there'll be quite a few things. What's your perspective on pleasure and pain? I'm, I'm pretty Aristotelian in that respect. I, I think that um, pleasure is a good, but we have to be careful because there's so many things that are quite pleasant that can uh, easily seduce us into thinking that. Effects. Yeah. Well, and, and we live in an environment, too. I mean, think about food, for example. So I grew up out in the countryside outside of you know milwaukee about an hour and we cooked everything from scratch we, we had very few processed foodstuffs um soda was only if there was a party you know? yeah yeah they, they didn't have things like that at school either and quite frankly the school food wasn't very good compared to the food that we made at home and so there wasn't a great danger of me and we, we were also exercising all the time we had to walk and run everywhere or yeah. ride our bikes so there wasn't a great danger of becoming obese by eating really tasty food to to a, you know an extent that that wasn't healthy kids nowadays you know mm. I, I go down to my <clears throat> to my uh, children's um, music things because they live several states over from me they live with their their mother and they live out in the countryside as well. But you go down there, and most of the kids at their schools are obese. Yeah. And you're like, what is going on here? Well, it's because, you know, we live in a society that constantly pushes all this candy and uh, these these flavored drinks and all of this this stuff, and portions have become much larger. So, you know, indulging oneself too much in, in that pleasure is going to be harmful for one yeah but that that's, that's mean, the thing isn't it and i mean it's just not being educated i mean that should be i yeah. think educated i mean kids I, I still don't know how to deal with my own pleasures and pain yeah um, well you, you can you can educate them by giving we usually have like health classes they're called yeah. and they'll you know it's all theoretical knowledge there's no practice Practical. to it mm. so i mean I, I sort of agree that there's there's got to be a good in pleasure or pleasures mm-hmm um, but again, it's got to be understood as to what's necessary and what's not. Exactly. And yeah, I think you, that maybe should... comes back to the root of, of everything we're, we're doing or thinking or wanting to be. Yeah, and, and to say that it's not necessary means you, you should be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to enjoy this at it. this point in time, right? Mm. But it doesn't mean that you have to say, well, I'm going to sacrifice this forever. That's 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 kind of extreme. That's that's kind of a silly thing to do. But coming back to, like, how would people get into it? So I think that the thing to do for, for a lot of people would be to, to pick a particular – let's call it school or style of philosophy and start reading some of the texts and start looking for other people who are, are practicing that. Hmm. And so when it comes to like Stoics, there's Stoic meetups worldwide and we have a, a annual Stoicon. Um, we have Stoicon axes. There's all sorts of ways to easily get into that. Epicureans also, they're a bit smaller, but they have their own groups where they meet um, Aristotelians, you know, that might be a little bit tougher. There are some Platonists out there that, that believe it or not, do get together and, and have their Platonist things. I don't really know any of them personally, but... You're kind of across I, I just, the board with these particular four. Is there one that you sort of navigate towards? I'm, I'm you know, I, I should be 
according to many people, like an, uh, an orthodox Stoic, because I'm the editor of Stoicism Today and on the team of the Modern Stoicism <laughs> Project, but I'm really an eclectic. Yeah. So I, I draw pretty heavily. I, I draw a lot from the Stoics, but I also draw a lot from the Aristotelians and from the, the later Platonists like Plutarch. But there's things that are useful from the Epicureans. Um, so so one, one thing that I do a lot of work in is understanding and managing anger. And, yeah. I, and I got into that in part because I was, um, I, I've struggled with anger all of my life, really so in my, my teens and 20s, uh, to the extent that I was actually a ward of the state for a while. My, my mother filed an uncontrollability petition against me and, and had me transferred to the state. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I found in ancient philosophy all sorts of stuff that I wasn't finding in modern psychology um, that could also be coupled with it. So Aristotle has a lot to say that's really useful. Um, the Stoics have a lot of great techniques for dealing with anger. But the Epicureans also had some interesting things to contribute. And so whenever I find something useful, mm. I'll, I'll take that on and kind of put it together in, in a, a synthesis. Um, and some people look down on eclecticism. They think it's well. You're not. You're, you should really choose a side. You know. No, but, I don't. I disagree. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think it's perfectly fine. You know, to to use what works. Well, I was just talking about my kids the other day to someone, um, another <laughs> father actually, and I thought that the the benefit is, and I've seen it in my own life, but you know, when you're looking up to two parents, ideally, yeah. I said to this mate of mine, I said, ideally, I would want them to be able to take away the best of who I am and what I have, and and what their mother has, and then use that to create a better person, essentially. Um, and that's eclectalism. I mean, it's not favoring one particular party. That's quite true, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's that's sort of the norm in things that are successful. In, in philosophy, in, in the way that we do things in philosophy, mm. we sometimes kind of have these weird assumptions that go with it that don't play out in other fields. Um, I'll, let me bounce one of these off of you because I, I actually contributed this recently to the new Journal of Hot Takes because this is kind of a hot take, uh, meaning that's something that's going to probably tick off my, my colleagues. Um, I was saying that Aristotle is not the best Aristotelian and he's not the best place we should go to find like fully developed Aristotelian philosophy. And Plato isn't the best person either um, for Platonic philosophy. And why is that? Well, you know, they're they're writing quite early on and their works are great but there's a lot of things that they didn't think about that later aristotelians and platonists did you know when these other schools come on the scene and present some new problems and positions and it, you know, it's just like any other thing would so here in the in the united states you know nfl football is the most watched um sport and you look at the level of play of the game today and then you think about like people playing a hundred years ago. The, our local team, the Packers, has been around for a hundred years, and so you know there's there's kind of a, a track record that you could look to. Mm. Imagine if you took one of those guys from a hundred years ago, and you put him in uh, the you know the contemporary essentially armor that they wear, right? yeah. the equipment. And you put him and his his colleagues out on the field, and you had them play against another contemporary NFL team, they would just get demolished yeah. because they, they'd have no clue of what's going on. Mm. And it's not because they're worse athletes or anything. They just, they just didn't have that, 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 uh, opportunity to, to develop 
you know, from from what the the others have contributed. And it's the same way in philosophy. Plato is in some, he's great, but I think Plutarch is actually a better Platonist than Plato. And Aristotle is great, but um, I think that and this will be somebody nobody recognizes. But uh, Alexander of Aphrodisias, who is known as the commentator, I think he's a better Aristotelian than than Aristotle, and it, it kind of makes sense if you think it through. But most people in philosophy would say you're you're insane. What are you talking about? <laughs> but think about almost yeah, every other sense. field, mm, right? Mm. Um, we we think that the people who've had the opportunity to benefit from the experience of of others encountering opposition that they're probably better better situated. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Are there? Um, I mean, obviously, you've got a lot of resources, and people can go to your website which is reasonio is that right mm-hmm. is it reasonio.com that's that's exactly it yeah it's not reason.io which sometimes people mix it up with that that probably goes somewhere else you know <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Reason, reasonio.com and it just stands for reason it out you know nothing, reason nothing it out. Uh, okay yeah yeah i was curious about that and and yeah a lot of resources there with leaving people behind today what what texts would you suggest, or maybe three books even, would Ooh. you suggest for them to go out and pick up and read? Are, are we talking about like primary texts? Or texts um, that you think would help them understand philosophy and also the practices that they can take away from philosophy that are easy to digest? Well, that's a, that's a good one. I would say... For the Stoics, we always we generally start people on Epictetus's Enchiridion, um, uh-huh. and then you know some of Seneca's letters. That yeah. that's a good kind of place to, to go. And then Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Okay, um, it's tough for Aristotle because there isn't any easy Aristotle text, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, but if you you know if you if you dig into, I would I usually have people read the Nicomachean Ethics first. Um, and I tell them that they're going to find it quite dry at the beginning, but they should just stick with it and keep thinking it through. And with, with Plato, um, you know, there are these dialogues that get put together in a package. It's often called the last days of Socrates and, and they, so they, they're connected together. It's the Euthyphro, the Apology, the Credo and the Phaedo. And each one of them is a separate dialogue, but they all kind of fit together in a narrative framework around this this guy who really impressed um, not just Plato, but all these other philosophers in ancient times, Socrates. Mm. And so those are good to start with. Um, I'm not a very good person when it comes to like, you know, secondary works because I don't spend much, much no, time. No, that's fair. Um, so if Do I, you have like, like a resources how, list on your website? No, and I should. <laughs> That's actually a, that's no. A your good your project. website is is quite a good resource, I suppose, and and the YouTube channel as well. I mean, in your and I haven't I apologized, but I haven't actually delved into your YouTube work. But is it a case of just having a conversation about certain things that you're reading or understanding in philosophy and trying to explain that in a way, or how does it? Sometimes I, I mean, a lot of my recent videos are fairly short. You know, like ten to twenty minutes, where I call them Perfect. core concepts, like and that. I. Mm. I'm taking some like key idea or distinction or argument from from uh, a work, and I'm I'm just in front of the chalkboard explaining it. But I also record my public talks, and um, 
you know, I do I do some book reviews as well. But okay. there there's actually there is one set of videos that could be helpful for learners. So I, I started creating a series called um, uh, Sadler's Advice for self-directed study. And so I'm, I'm doing, like I did a video on, if you want to study Plato, here's here's how to do it. If you want to study Aristotle, here's how to do it. And I think I've got about seven of them out right now. I'm supposed to be working on one on Augustine of Hippo this, this month. And obviously there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of work to do with that. But those can be quite helpful, I think, for beginners. Okay. And, and I really do need to start shooting some videos where I just talk about like, well, how would you get into studying philosophy, period, and how not to um, get yourself down about what you don't know and, you know, thing, things like that. Um, but it, it's just difficult to, to find the time to shoot as much work as I'd like to. <laughs> so. No, that's fair enough. Um, but you've all, you do produce a lot of content. What are just to to wrap things up here? What are three of your favorite um, philosophical practices, I suppose, or understandings? Oh. Okay. Well, you know, I've mentioned I, I struggle with anger, so one comes from from Epictetus, yeah, and he says. There's, we, all, we all have this tendency to get ticked off at people, and when we do, we label them, and we call them certain things, and then we, we assume that they, they're that kind of person, and they have that kind of you know, deliberate thought process. So somebody's you know, uh, a jerk to me, and I think, oh, that person is a jerk. Um, they really have it in for me. And Epictetus says, really, if you, you want to shift your frame of thinking. So instead of saying all this stuff to yourself, why don't you say to them, say to yourself, this person is acting the way that they do because they think in some way that's the right way to behave. That's, that's good for, for them to do. They're totally mistaken about it. You know, there's, there's no, uh, mistake about the fact that they are a jerk, but, that's why they're being a jerk. It's yeah. not because they really have it in for you. Or if they do have it in for you, they think having it in for you is the best thing for them to do. And if you can do that, it, it doesn't always make you uh, not be angry, but it, it certainly helps you be less angry. And Epictetus points out that it will, it, it may not like take feeling completely away, but it can transform anger into compassion. Yes. Yeah. So that that's a good one. And Tough then, one, but you know, a good one, yep. Yeah, you end up being less angry, so there's a benefit to you as well. And and yeah. oftentimes, then you can you can actually like sometimes fix the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is is from somebody who we don't usually think of as a, a philosopher, but more of a poet, uh, Rainer Maria Rilke. I'm, I'm a big fan of him, and in his letters to a young poet, as well as other places, he talks about the need for us to cultivate what he calls solitude in, in German, Einsamkeit, being being by yourself. Which is mm. different than loneliness, you know. Loneliness is when you're 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 alone and you don't want to be alone. Um, solitude is something you 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 should. He talks in spatial metaphors. Try to build some depth within yourself. Open up spaces so you can be in a crowd, but able to sort of just be there with yourself and your thoughts and your experiences. And, you know, it, it takes some, some work to do this. And a lot of people could, I suppose, get quite competitive about it. I've got more solitude than you do, you know, and that would be totally, you know, the wrong way to do it. But, um, reading, reading Rilke gives you some, some good ideas about how, how to, mm. to do that sort I of like thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then what else do I find particularly helpful? I mean, 
Another thing that does come from Epictetus, but it's not unique to him, Aristotle says similar things and Plato says similar things, is the um, taking a pause. You, you get into a situation and you think you know exactly what's going on because something has happened. Uh, it could be something good, could be something that, that you're perceiving as bad. And we're often wrong about these things. So it's mm. good for us just to stop and, you know, Epictetus says for every appearance uh, or everything that's, that's, you know, impressing itself upon you, stop and ask it, are you really what you pretend to be? And I, and I don't mm. mean to suggest that we should do this all the time, you know, like become skeptics about everything. Yeah. But it, it's really helpful. I mean, it could be a good point when you start getting ticked off or <laughs> upset about something, maybe that's the time to start actually practicing it. Um, well, I think it's a challenge know. to to bring that pause in if you're very reactive generally, but certainly yeah. it, it, it's because a practice again that once you start bringing in, it'll, it'll certainly help. And that's, you know, like I always use the example of someone cutting you off in the traffic. Yeah. Just to pause and before you blow up, just to really think about, <laughs> you know, what it's all about and, and having that perspective. And those three things that you talk about there will certainly help with that respect. Yeah, um, and I have to admit, I'm I'm a competitive and and sort of mean spirited driver, even though I shouldn't. Be, <laughs> you know, at least now I know that I am, so I can kind of keep it in check. <laughs> yeah, mate. Look, thanks for uh, coming on today. It's been a fantastic conversation. A lot more that we yeah, can discuss. I really enjoyed this. Um, best to go to what reasonio.com, um, your YouTube channel. I'll stick the links in the show notes because you've sent them through to me, and I think that's just uh, is it GB. GBI Sadler. Oh, YouTube Sadler? Yeah, yeah, GBI Sadler. GBI yeah. Sadler. So I'll stick all the links in the show notes, guys, so check that out. And um, thank Greg for coming on the show too. Feel free to reach out and say hello. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, guys. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there. Um, and anything else really that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link, it helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out again at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there, breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Martinuzzi. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.